Dotnet Rocks episode 636 with guest Joe O'Brien. Recorded live Tuesday, February 1st, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard and Carl, Carl and Richard, however you way you slice it, it comes up peanuts. I thought it was cheese, but okay. Do you remember that uh, Snickers slogan from the 70s? No matter how you slice it, it comes up peanuts. <laughs> I don't, but okay, I'll believe you. The randomest things just pop into my head sometimes. Uh, hey, man, it's snowing here. And it Still. will never stop snowing. There was a They blocked off State Street in New London the other day, and at the bottom of State Street, there was a 20-foot-high pile of snow. Wow. And that's just from, you know, the sidewalk area um, down the one block, 20 feet high. Just that's ridiculous. A, that's a lot of snow. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And here, like an idiot, I was thinking the first snowstorm, I thought to myself, you know, I should go get a snowblower. Ah, no way. Home Depot will be out of them, you know? And then, uh, it, you know, and then it snows again and again and again. Oh, well. Stop and now you already. can't buy one because you know it's not going to snow anymore. The moment you, buy, in fact, you need to go buy one, Carl. You know why? <laughs> it'll stop at, snowing. Yeah, it'll stop. Snowing. It's just like me <laughs> setting up my house to be have the heated driveway thing, right? I got my heated driveway all set up. I didn't actually put the boiler in, but it's like all I got to do there hasn't snowed since. It's been like yeah, three years. I'll no be snow. like out in the driveway, six o'clock in the morning. Bring it on! Bring it on! Yeah, no, no snow. Nothing to do. Then I'm yeah. saying I actually walk around to my neighbors and say, "You can thank me for the fact we have no snow." I was ready, so I didn't have to shovel anymore. <laughs> it's all me. It's, uh, you, damn it, uh, I'm ready for this snow to go away. Yeah, you had enough, have you? You're a little stir crazy. enough. Well, and we had to cancel the recordings because you couldn't get to the studio. That's right. Yeah, it's been nutty. Yeah. I, I'm trying to have an inspection on my new house, and it's been three weeks. And it's because it snowed on the same day, two weeks in a row. Crazy. All right. I love it. Enough of my complaining. Let's get to Better Know a Framework. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, what do you got? Crazy music. Uh, I'm talking about a WPF class here, system.windows.splashscreen. That's really? right. There's a splash screen class. Now, you may be asking, why don't you just put up a regular screen? What's so great about a splash screen? Well, the splash screen class displays the splash screen as soon as possible after the application is started. It's displayed by using native code Interesting. before the WPF app instance is created. Hmm. It is displayed in the center of the screen, and when the app is loaded, the splash screen fades. It is a splash screen. Okay. It's a please wait while we load your app kind of thing. And is it a graphic? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it shows an image in a startup window. When a WPF app starts, so it's really about an image. Uh, any image format supported by Windows Imaging Component. Did you know that there is a technology called WIC? Windows Windows Imaging, Imaging Component. I did not know that. Yeah, it's for displaying BMP, GIF, JPEG, PNG, or TIFF files. Nice. And PNG includes the alpha channel, so it can be transparent, if you like. Splash screen. Splash screen. Learn it. Know it. Love it. Awesome. Richard, who's talking to us? Um, a GiveCamp conversation from Jeff Ammons. Hi, guys. I just wanted to write you and thank you for episode 532, in which our intrepid hero, Richard, who knew I was intrepid? Intrepid. Yeah. Finds himself in Dallas for their GiveCamp. Yep. That episode inspired me to dive headfirst into organizing the first GiveCamp ever held in the Atlanta area. Thanks to an advantageous alignment of the planets and possibly other heavenly spheres, Microsoft decided to organize a number of gift camps for the same weekend I was planning, which was the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. That allowed them to throw their support behind 14 gift camps at once. Had they not done that, I can assure you I would have found my task very overwhelming, and thanks to folks like Mary, Julie, and Tammy, I had to do very little fundraising. 
And I have to give an extra special thanks to Domino's Pizza, Green Mountain Coffee, De- Dev Express, TechSmith, DiscountASP.net, Microsoft, and the Georgia Gwinnett College for making it all possible for us to help nine nonprofits in our first ever event. There were lots of sponsors, and you can see the National Give Campsite for a complete list. We had between 30 and 40 devs, designers, and DBAs throughout the weekend working with the students, faculty, and staff from the school. Wow. It was by far the hardest work I've ever done in a weekend, but also the most rewarding. And it hadn't been for episode 532, I would have missed that whole fantastic experience. How cool is that? Going back four years, you guys, along with Scott Hanselman, were influential in my decision to start a .NET user group as well. On top of that, I have to thank you for helping me keep what little sanity I have managed <laughs> to retain while commuting in Atlanta's ever so pleasant traffic. Pleasant. So keep up the good work. And thanks, Jeff Ammon, the president of GGMug, ggmug.com. I think he and gets a mug. the of Give Camp Atlanta. I think he gets a mug. I'll send him a mug. Hey, Jeff, this is why we do this stuff. Glad it worked out for you. And uh, I'm fascinated by Give Camp. I hope that came across in the show. Yeah. That we're just trying to understand how to keep something like this going. I had a great conversation with uh, Gabe Sumner. You know, you remember Gabe from Telerik? Yeah. So he's one of their, and arguably their main, they, their, you know, specific sitefinity evangelists. Yeah. And I had a chance to chat with them this weekend, and they've now done, so uh, Telerik will give away a copy of Sitefinity to any charity that wants to use it. Awesome. But they've now built, and Gabe was a part of this, because he's done a whole bunch of these give camps, teaches people how to use Sitefinity and so forth. They've now built like a give camp wizard. Like specifically, how to set up all the things you need in Sitefinity for a charity, how to set up a donation button and your forums and all the stuff for a charity so they can get even more done in that 48-hour window. Wow, that's uh, great. Of a give camp. Got to love Telerik. They're very clever, and it's a, an interesting solution to probably stop fooling around, build a tool. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, a mug is on its way to Atlanta for you, and if you've got questions, concerns, or want to tell us how a show changed your life, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Our guest today is Joe O'Brien. Joe is a father, business owner, speaker, and developer. In 2006, he co-founded Edgecase, a leading Ruby and Ruby on Rails training and consulting company. They've had a tremendous amount of success helping companies as large as The Gap, and AT&T Interactive, as well as those startups still in the inception stage. Through a partnership with the Pragmatic Programmers, Joe has been giving training for well over three years on testing and development with Ruby on Rails. Joe has spoken at conferences ranging from RailsConf to numerous regional conferences and countless user groups. Welcome to .NET Rocks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So what's the state of affairs with Ruby these days? Well, Ruby itself is thriving like no language I've seen in a long time. We are starting to see um, implementations going on to various platforms. We're seeing um, what has turned what would started off as proof of concepts on some of these implementations to um, um, to full mature frameworks and, and language implementations to work with. We're seeing an explosion of companies that are using a lot of Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, an incredibly large JRuby implementation was announced by LinkedIn, as we all know, has filed for IPO recently. Um, so we're um, we're experiencing just an amazing uh, amount of success, a lot of fun, and a lot of people that are really enjoying being on it. Yeah, you know, I usually hear developers very happy with the Ruby development experience, but in, in my perspective, coming more from an enterprise side of things, I'm more fascinated with how does this platform stand up to big projects and big problems. Right. We all love the language, but how's the how's the platform scaling? The platform scaling like nothing I've ever seen. Um, we, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because we're blurring the lines between the uh, quote unquote big enterprise and uh, startups. Um, and realizing, you know, some of these startups are doing larger scales than we've ever seen with enterprises. Take, for instance, Groupon and companies like that. Um, you know, Ruby's gone from a lot of people thought about it as a programmer's toy that uh, developers like to play with. But realistically, from a business perspective, it's always been an incredible choice to make because it's not about speed of development. It's not about um, necessarily certain language features. But it's always been about a flexible language that brings cost of change down as low as it can possibly go. It's about removing a lot of the ceremony that comes with other things, going down the essence of what you're trying to write, and being able to test anything and everything all the way through. 
So um, we've uh, we've experienced the success from all the way from the technical side all the way up to the management side. And a lot of startups and companies that are coming to us now are coming to us because of the technology. It's not why we started um, um, doing what we're doing, but it seems to be the way people are progressing. And um, now there's Ruby for Windows? Yeah. So we... It, it, it's been an interesting thing with uh, Windows. We, as most people will see if they attend a uh, Ruby or a Rails conference, we're, we definitely don't lack the Macintosh uh, displays that go on. We, uh, we tend to err on the side of, um, we tend to be a Unix-focused crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, not, be, not for any kind of anti-Windows stance, just uh, the way we like to work. Unfortunately, what this has meant for a long time is we've kind of ignored the Windows as a platform. Um, it's always kind of carried along by a few passionate people. Unfortunately, those people have not had a lot of help. Um, a couple of years ago, we started noticing this as a community, and um, that's when John Lamb and the Iron, uh, Iron Ruby project were going very heavily. And mm-hmm. we've been keeping a close eye on it, hoping that would come up. Um, but as we've seen, nobody's really sure exactly what's happening. And uh, we don't necessarily need a full Ruby implementation to, to succeed on the platform, but we'd like tools and various things like that to be able to work. And um, from what we've seen recently, we're not sure what's going to happen from a corporate support standpoint. So the communities rallied together and decided, let's really start working on this. Let's take these few passionate people and glue them together and put them in the same place. And we're realizing we have a much larger Windows audience than we thought we did. Mm. So um, recently, Engine Yard has launched a campaign to, um, to create what they've called the Rails Installer, uh, which is at railsinstaller.org, to bring you from zero to the point of developing a Rails application much easier on you. Um, and it's just a matter of getting the same tools that we all use installed um, and getting to that point and using Windows for a development platform that works. Yeah, it's not a trivial thing to get a working development environment together. It's not. It's been, um, it's been interesting. Uh, we, we try not to focus on what I would call swimming upstream with Windows, something like a SigWin install or whatnot, mm-hmm. but really harnessing what's there. And it's not that those things don't exist. They're just spread out across. So getting them, you know, first making their lives easier from the point of one-click install, everything's there and getting going, then the next point's going to be education. Yeah, We need to kind of go out and start talking to people about, you know, when you see Rails instructions, don't be scared when you see a dollar sign on your command prompt instead of a C colon or... Um, making people realize that the command line is not that scary of a place. We don't, you don't have to live in it to do Rails development. Um, but at the same time, we don't need the big monstrosities of IDEs and things to work in the language. Well, now that you mention IDEs, I think uh, maybe a lot of our listeners are wondering how this uh, development environment compares to Visual Studio. Yeah, it's, you know, it's Visual Studio and, um, you know, on the Java side, the IntelliJ products and things like that, they definitely have their place. We tend to be a language that doesn't have a whole lot of, um, doesn't have a, you know, we don't have the compilers. We don't have a lot of the things in the background running. So we don't end up with a lot of the tool sets and, um, and IDE supports that we, that we have. We tend to be plain text editors and command line driven. Mm -hmm. We develop our own set of tools for building things in the form of rake files. Uh, rake is the uh, Ruby's version of make. Right. Um, and, so we, we end up not focusing on those as much. We're hoping somebody comes along and helps us with Visual Studio integration, but there's nothing stopping you from using Visual Studio uh, to develop Ruby, get some um, some simple syntax completion, things like that going. Yeah, I thought um, this is what Iron Ruby was going to do for us. Right. Well, so did we. Um, come to find <laughs> out that um, we have, n- from what we understand, nobody's really working on it um, from Microsoft themselves. Right. Mm. Uh, Visual Studio integration itself. Um, that was the big kind of realization um, when Schmidt kind of gave us all insight into what was going on. Um, it's interesting because the the project has gotten, I, I think it's gained momentum since his departure, and which has been fantastic. But as far as Visual Studio integration itself, we're not sure where that stands. I mean, Visual Studio was built to plug other languages into it. Like, this doesn't feel like it ought to be a barrier. Right. No, correct. It, it, it doesn't seem like it should be. Um, but we have... Developers of Ruby and, and a community full of, um, you know, from a language, uh, a strong language user perspective, we have a bunch of people not on Windows, and we have a lot of Windows users who aren't that familiar with the Ruby culture and environment. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think uh, if you want to consider both the Ruby developers who want to get into Windows versus the Visual Studio 
uh, crowd that wants to use Ruby, how, you know, how big are those groups and how successful do you want to be in getting each of those groups uh, into, into Ruby for Windows? I would think that if you want to tap into the big, huge pool of Visual Studio developers, the best way to do that is to provide a language, a Ruby language on the DLR like Iron Ruby. We definitely agree. I mean, it's, it's, we'd love to see that. We'd definitely love to see that there. Our message right now that we're trying to get out is you don't, just because Iron Ruby is still in working stages and still coming up doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't take advantage of a lot of what Ruby has to offer. Yeah. Sometimes you can't necessarily glue it into an existing application that's there, but does that mean you're prevented from developing a Rails application gluing into Windows SQL Server? Not at all. Right. So it sounds like, it sounds like your target market is the, the Ruby community that wants to develop for Windows. Step one is definitely. I mean, this is a you know this is a thing we've been relying on a lot of support and help from Microsoft, um, and we just decided that there's no reason for us to do that. We're a community; we should take responsibility for it. And so, step one was getting the environment working. Step two is definitely going to be reaching out because our goal is not to continually talk amongst ourselves. Our goal is to get other people that that want to take advantage of this and want to use it, and give them the support and help they need. And that's going to be step two. Is you know. Um, Getting Visual Studio integration in, having somebody help us build that, um, getting you know a great it's somebody that's great on the Windows side glued together with a great Ruby person, right. and let's have them get that moving. Yeah. It's the same you know it's the same thing we saw with jQuery. It wasn't that jQuery wasn't possible on Windows, but once somebody got it into Visual Studio and announced it, it it gained a lot of momentum from the Windows crowd, right. and that was wonderful. And that's exactly what we're looking to do. We just considered you know installing Rails kind of the uh, first step in this. Yeah. Well, and it does it feels like it's one of those things where once you get the rock on top of the hill, it'll take off on its own. You're just not quite at the top of the hill yet. Exactly. And that's exactly what we're hoping for is getting community momentum built. I'm looking at the Rails installer, which, you know, this is a good confidence builder that here are the five things you need and how to get them to mm-hmm. get off the dime with Ruby on Rails. Just Ruby, Rails, Git, which is source management. I guess SQLite is some sort of, of database. Yeah, SQLite is the default database that most of us use in initial development. It's just a file-based uh, uh, database. It's very lightweight. It's used for embedding and things. You can't fool yourself into thinking you could use that for production, right? No, I mean, you could if you wanted to. You, you, you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't want to for large threaded applications, things right. like that. Um, but just to get a proof of concept of going from database to web page, it's fantastic. Um, and, then, uh, and then moving you forward. But again, it was an uphill battle to get it installed. Right, and that's the thing that uh, Wayne Sagan and the um, Dr. Nick and the guys at Engineer took care of. And Dev Kit, we have a number of libraries that are still um, C compiled. They're native libraries, mm-hmm. and getting a raw Windows machine doesn't always have the necessarily compilers and things that need for a, a quick gem install of an app, of a of a of a library that would have a native binding. So Dev, that is the um, kind of the bare minimum compilers and things that you would need so that when you would do a gem install and it's a native library, it can go and build the library itself when it installs. Do we need to define gem for folks who are just right. sort of dipping into this? You know, that's a good question. That's a good thing. Um, yeah, gems are just really small Ruby libraries. So um, kind of a combination of, uh, well, again, these are Unix um, analogies, but um, from the apt world um, or from the uh, from the Perl um, CPAN libraries, it's a Libraries that are available anywhere, um, you have a command, gem, install, and it'll go out to a particular set of mirrors and grab whatever library you're looking for, such that we're all kind of pointing to the same libraries and make the, the things generally available to everybody. Um, it's a you know, very simple command that you can go down, and it, you, know, you can program using external libraries that other, others have put out there and made available. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC, but you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC, 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? 
Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC 3 and the Razor View engine. Download your free copy today at Telerik.com slash freemvc. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not being a Ruby guy um, and sort of having the Visual Studio experience. I'm just um, I'm, I'm curious to know what our listeners think of uh of this you know is this something that they would go ahead and install um that you would expect uh sort of hardcore developers who aren't necessarily just solely in the microsoft camp which a lot of our listeners aren't um what can what can we tell them how can we entice them over to ruby installer it's a, it's there are a lot of nice ideas in the ruby language that are worth looking into you know whether you're going to use ruby full time or not Harken back to an Alan Perlis quote that says, you know, a language that doesn't change the way I think about programming is not worth learning. Ruby definitely falls into the camp of making you look at things differently than you've looked at before. If you come from the Java world, if you come from the C-sharp world, come from the Visual Basic, the places like that, even some of the people looking at things like F-sharp, it's fantastic because it really has a lot of interesting influences from Lisp, some from the Smalltalk community, um, and it, it glues them together in very interesting ways. So if nothing else, it's definitely worth playing with. And I'd say that the Rails installer lets you go from zero to Rails application in no time. And so even for the non-hardcore developers, don't think of this as something that's scary and hard to look at. Yeah. Um, coupling this with something as simple as um, our company created uh, a site called Ruby Cohen's, K-O-A-N-S, rubycohens.com, that's a self-guided introduction to Ruby. It's just a fun little game to kind of show you the edges of Ruby and show you some of the things about it. There are um, an infinite amount of Rails tutorials out there, including videos at a place like PeepCode and other places like that. We can, um, with this Rails installer, you can start playing with those right out of the bat. You're not necessarily in Visual Studio, or you can be. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but it's not. there aren't large projects you're having to deal with mm. or um, configuration things that you're going through. So we definitely are, you know, we, we would love Visual Studio um, support. There's no doubt about that, and we're looking for some help and ways to do that. But in the in the beginning, don't let that scare people off. And you know, we've heard a lot about the Rails experience being, you know, having the scaffolding to sort of help you, especially with the data. Do mm-hmm. you have that same kind of experience uh, with SQL Server integration? Oh yeah, uh, database. Whatever database you're using on the back end is just a configuration issue. So you're not going to experience um, the ORM is completely abstracted. Um, even the definitions of your tables and things are abstracted into a Ruby domain-specific language, DSL. So you're not doing database-dependent DDL scripts. You're not doing things like that. You're defining it in Ruby. So whatever database you're using, and you can migrate from SQLite all the way up to SQL Server with a configuration change. Okay. So what you get out of the box is the ability to create a Rails application working against the database, no matter what database you want to use. Okay. Now that means somebody's gone to the effort of creating these transformation tools for each one of these databases? Correct. Okay. And I guess I just, you know, presumably they've built up all the big ones. There's an Oracle one and a DB2 one and a SQL Server one and a MySQL one and a Postgres one and so on. Exactly. I've, I looked through the list recently and started laughing at all the ones that brought back some some good and some not so good memories of database usages. Um, Access, uh, DBase, Paradox. <laughs> Am I scaring exactly. you yet? Oh, I'm totally I'm from Somebody who came from a FoxPro start, let me tell you, I could go back. As, <laughs> so, um, no, there's, you know, there's database... Um, there's database connectors for a, a lot of them. I have seen lots of people running SQL Server on Rails, um, and uh, and those are out there and included in the base uh, Rails install. Tell us about the editing experience. Is it basically Notepad compiling kind of stuff, or it very um, much is. Um, yeah. The the editing experience is extremely um, extremely simple and lightweight. Um, Can you use an editor like? Well, like Visual Studio or or Sharp Edit or any are there any preferred editors to use besides Notepad? Anything that understands line endings, so Notepad would definitely be ruled out. Yeah, um, you can use anything from something like TextPad to up to Visual Studio. My personal favorite is a free one called Crimson Editor, but that's only because it has syntax highlighting for Ruby. Mm. Um, but you're doing very simple text editing of files, very small amounts of things, mm. um, and uh, and just about anything will help you get along with that. 
You know, what's interesting is this is the way development used to be is that you grab sort of your favorite tools. Everybody had a favorite editor that was independent of your debugging tools, that was independent of your, your source control. You know, a lot of that just sort of gone away because Visual Studio consumed it all. Yep. And that happened in the Java world as well, which it kind of harkened back to my background. Um, it, the same thing happened there. And now the biggest fights you're going to find in the Ruby and Rails um, conferences or, you know, VI versus Emacs. Mm. Um, we are re- realistically going back and grabbing some of those old tools and old editors because you can, you can make the tools that you need and you want. We, we work on the command line because it's very simple standard in, standard out, um, tools that we use. Um, we try to do, you know, one thing and one thing well in our scripts. And therefore you can plug and play your own tools together, which is, there's an interesting, um, thing that happens of teasing from the Ruby community out towards IDEs, but realistically, we're not, we're not in a place where we need a lot of language tools and editing tools to, to be able to go and do what we need to. I don't know, man. I'm spoiled by IntelliSense. I don't, I don't no. think I could go back to text editing. You know, I give my right arm for some good refactoring support, so yeah. there are arguments to the IDE that I do understand. <laughs> Yeah, then you brought up two of them. You know, IntelliSense yep. is one of those things that we've had for so long now. It's, if you literally feel like you're blind if you don't have it. And Refactory is another one. But what about UI design? So um, that's an interesting uh, thing that comes up, and I'm not I'm honestly sure how to answer it. Well, isn't most Ruby stuff uh, web-based? Most Ruby stuff is that I've seen is web-based. Yeah. Um, I know there are people working out there in GUI frameworks. I personally don't have experience with them or know. Um, as far as IntelliSense goes, it's interesting, but um, if you want to scale the cliff that is the learning curve of either VI or Emacs, both of those have IntelliSense built in that are very much go back to the rudimentary text searching, search this buffer or most recent buffers that you've used, instead of the crazy generate the AST in the background and reflect your code back to you, we're going back to some very simple algorithmic rules in our editors they're actually proving to be a lot more efficient than um, some of the IntelliSense that's out there. Now, you, you mentioned a couple of things that our listeners might not be familiar with. Generating ASTs in the background? Oh, sorry. Um, generating the a- abstract syntax trees. A lot of your, your really good IDEs, so let's take IntelliJ, for example, you're not really looking at your code as it stands on disk. You're looking at a reflection that in the background. It is built, kind of halfway built your code, so to speak. Yeah. It's generated this abstract syntax tree, and then it reflects your code back at you. So when you make a refactoring change, it changes things you didn't think of but were really required. Mm. Um, becomes scary good. It's really interesting how they've done that. But they've gone through hoops and jumps to get to that point. I found personally, and a lot of other people I know have found, that using the, um, the text completion that comes with either uh, what's called C tags or exuberant C tags, um, or in the, the VI world they have some really interesting... Um, completions that are out there that, that work just as well. Yeah. So there are editors that do statement completion. Yes. Yes, indeed. And what we just don't have IntelliSense as people know it. Okay. Statement completion is pretty, pretty cool in and of itself. Um, what are some of those editors again? Can we mention them and add links to them? Yeah. So the, the standard ones are VI and Emacs. Well, yeah. Um, okay. So these are that, but there's uh, extensions that you mentioned for these. Right. There's extensions to those that are out there, and they're included in most of the base packages. Oh, okay. Um, they're C tags or exuberant E tags. Is that the C letter C in the word tags? Yeah, letter C, T-A-G-S. Okay. Yeah, so there's also a Java editor out there called NetBeans. It's been doing a really good job of mm-hmm. giving us IntelliSense um, from the position of um, using JRuby um, and, and letting that come out. But we've all seen kind of where <laughs> the, the most recent news on NetBeans and Oracle not getting along too well, or the, the Ruby community not getting along with Oracle and NetBeans. So, so what is going on there with, the, with Ruby and Java? I personally don't know. Um, I'm not thrilled with what's going on. But there's definitely trouble in paradise, is what you're saying. Well, I, it, they've just decided that it's not the stream that they want to go up. Um, Oracle you know, has. Oracle has, as yeah. far as Ruby support and NetBeans. Um, it's unfortunate that they've decided to go that route, because I know a lot of developers who are using it that like it. Um, but it's, uh, and it's, I mean, it's the same answer we get for Visual Studio, quite honestly, in the fact that, you know, it's, it's built to, to create, to let you get in there and play with it and create the tools that you need around it. Um, the NetBean plugins are no different. And so while Oracle's not going to be developing them, it doesn't mean the community cannot. 
So right. it's just going to wait and see at the moment. Well, this is a good time to ask both you guys, Richard and Joe, about um, Iron Ruby and the state of it. I mean, we haven't really talked about it too much on the show lately, but um, do either of you guys know what's going on with Iron Ruby? Well, I think the last announcements we got really said that, that you know, John Lamb a while ago moved to a different project, right. and, and, and John was brought into Microsoft to build Iron Ruby. And ended up working closely with Jim Hugan and with the Iron Python guys, and they ended up getting that made that made the DLR. So arguably, you say John was a did a key thing that he got that DLR done, and we got a chance to interview him, talk about dynamic so language forth. runtime. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, that's Reed. I think that was the the key thing, but Iron Ruby never really came to fruition. The, the sort of last things we heard, or that I think were officially announced, was this idea that um, it's all been. It's a complex project now. It's out there, and uh, there's no resources being allocated from Microsoft to it. Well, what about that, Joe? I mean, what about taking the the Iron Ruby that exists in the in the free world at Codeplex and uh, sort of merging that project with yours to try to bring a Visual Studio experience? Well, I think it's a great idea. I don't I don't think either one of them were headed towards Visual Studio. Um, Necessarily, we're just looking at getting um, some kind of install working with what we have now referred to as MRI, Matt's Ruby interpreter. Matt's being the guy who wrote Ruby. Um, we've commonly started referring to that because we have so many implementations now, all looking at the same Ruby implementation um, and follow and, and uh, passing all the same specs as the other ones. But with that being said, Iron Ruby is an implementation of Ruby on the CLR with the DLR attached to it to allow some of the dynamic. Um, attributes that need to happen. Last I've heard, and this is um, from what I gather in the community, is that it actually gained quite a bit of momentum since it's um, released out to CodePlex. It is a CodePlex project. Microsoft is not donating resources. However, with uh, Jimmy Schmidt was on the project uh, leading it after John Lamb's departure. Um, it still grew. It still kept going. It's there. Some top people in the community are still working with it, submitting bugs, patches to it, and getting it fixed up. Um, and um, and so it is out there. It is usable. Um, and it is actually gaining some momentum from the community standpoint, which is really nice. Okay. And so that is definitely something else we're looking at. But again, nobody from that project, from the Iron Ruby project at the time, was working on Visual Studio integration. So... Well, it, it just seems to me, like we said before, that you know, if you're if you're looking to bring the Ruby language to the masses, that through Visual Studio, even is a good idea. Even Visual Studio Express uh, doesn't that support the DLRs and the DLR part of the .NET framework, Richard? Well, it's right. It's tied to the CLR, but and, and, you know, I think the thing Joe's kind of applying here is there's nothing about Studio in this. This is about making it play with .NET. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Iron Ruby, they worked on ways to get it to run against the DLR right. and within the .NET space, but yeah. they never did the studio part. So there's nothing done as far as, you know, studio IntelliSense and, and those kinds of things. But I mean, it's, we know how to implement languages in Visual Studio. Yeah. It's so. been, it, it's definitely been done. I mean, heck, they dragged F sharp up there. And I think that was a harder fit than Ruby would be. Right. And I think what you said before about the DLR being the critical piece of the puzzle, that's it. I mean, but that's there. So isn't it just, it seems ripe that some Ruby people would get together with some DLR people in, in uh, Visual Studio um, language integration people and, and make it happen. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at this from your point of view too, Joe. I mean, if, yeah. if you, if you want to bring Ruby to the masses, it seems to me that's the way to do it. And you're definitely not getting an argument here. Um, we're, you know, um, we as a community are looking for help in that. And we don't, you know, m many of us don't have the expertise and things to do that. And we'd mm. love it if somebody could help us. Well, there you go, There's listeners. Challenge puzzle, time. So. You know, the other direction it might be interesting to go on this. I know this is supposed to be a show Ruby on Windows is, yeah. where's Miguel in all this? Because Mono ought to be able to pick this off, too. Ah, uh, Miguel de Acasa, yeah. Yeah, no, indeed. And um, I didn't I remember, I'm sure I remember vaguely in the uh, back there that when this situation sort of came up where Iron Ruby was sort of at loose ends, there was a call out to Miguel and, and their team to say, will you pick this up? Yeah, and then, but the other thing to keep in mind, like you said, and it, it's just beating a dead horse, but that, you know, Iron Ruby is fantastic, but it is a .NET play. It is, right. you know, the integration and the connecting to those libraries. Um, we're not saying that we don't like that. We don't need that. I think it's going to be great. Um, looking at the success of JRuby on the Java platform, mm -hmm. 
lets us know that what, you know, how much we can in- integrate into other communities. Um, but in the meantime, it, that doesn't need to be there, I think, for Visual Studio integration, from what I understand rudimentary about the technology. Well, that's and true. So, I mean, you have unmanaged C++ in Visual Studio as well. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're talking a very interesting situation, this idea of using the Studio as the IDE and not the .NET platform. Well, ultimately, I think that's what developers want. They want that development experience of Visual Studio. I'm talking about .NET developers or Visual Studio developers. You know, I, I'm you. You make the argument for using the DLR or not. Okay, that's a separate argument. But certainly, the ability to develop uh, Ruby applications in Studio with all of its great designers and all that kind of stuff would certainly be nice. No, indeed, and I think being in your being in staying in your comfort zone as you're learning a new language is really nice. Yeah, you don't have the entire world in front of you. You know, you're you're driving on different streets, but as long as you have your same car, it's kind of nice. Yeah, um, it's. Um, I think that, and we're definitely not ignoring that as a community. We're actually actively asking for and looking for help on that. Okay. Um, we're just saying where our expertise lies is in you know other things, and so we're. We're working on getting those as step one. Cool deal. Hopefully getting enough eyeballs and attention, and then somebody will come along and help us out. Well, I think that's a great plan. But that's, this is really about taking existing Ruby developers and bringing them to Studio, but still building the apps they've always needed to do. It's another step to bring .NET developers to Ruby. Right. Well, and we want to make, I mean, we're not going to get them at all if we don't have an environment in which they can develop, yep. whether it's a comfort <laughs> environment or not. And so... Um, that is the ultimate game. We're again, we're not just trying to talk to ourselves inside our community and right. and and whatnot. We're actually actively looking out and saying we want to bring more people into the fold. Yep. And point. So it's a, it's a multiple step process. Point taken. Absolutely. And I and uh, at that point, I would say to the listeners, you know, there's a challenge for you. You know, if you've got uh, some Ruby experience, some language development experience, this might be a great project for you to get involved in. Indeed. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I want to jump back to the UI conversation a little bit just because I, I don't think we spent a lot of time on it. But are you, is it really that old school that you're literally just writing some HTML and looking at it a browser step by step? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm going to, so I'm going to challenge the old school aspect of that. Um, but, uh, it, you know, there's some ways it's definitely uh, correct and some ways I'd, I'd, I'd argue. But, yes, we are. Um, most of the people I know are doing HTML and CSS, um, quote-unquote, by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have gone so far as to create some templating languages that make that a little bit easier. Some people prefer them. Some people don't. Right. It allows us to um, integrate with, use designers very, very effectively. Um, um, and designers in the people sense. Um, yes. And uh, people that are familiar with that kind of a base. Well, because we you're not from, coupled to a tool. Exactly. You're not coupled to a tool. And from a maintain, maintainability standpoint, it's phenomenal. Um, you're not worrying about tool-generated code. You're not going into tools to, to try to regenerate things. You're pulling templates out where they make sense for a human, not for um, some kind of design um, tool designer. Um, and so from an old-school standpoint of are we going back and simplifying, most definitely. From a are we taking three steps back in in doing more rudimentary type things, I don't know that I'd agree with the implication there. No, but it also realizes that that means there's no Ruby developer probably that just speaks Ruby, that they're probably fluent in JavaScript and HTML as well. Indeed, indeed. We we joke about the gray area a lot in the in the Ruby and Rails community. That that area, we know where Photoshop sits with designers. We know where our editors and our code sits against the database on the back end. Right. But there's a fluid area in between of gray, between designer and developer, that we've really bridged, and you will not find a single Rails developer who just is able to do Rails and nothing else. Um, right, you can't get away with it. Yeah, no, and it, and it's fair. It's bare metal web, and that's not inherently evil. In fact, it, I think that they're in a better state now than they've ever been because of libraries like jQuery. Indeed, and I think a lot mm. of people have 
learned HTTP a lot more than they used to know uh, simply because of this. Not that you have to go down to the bare metal there, but you're closer to it. And so if something goes wrong, you know where to go and look. Yeah, I I can't disagree with you, but it's an important reminder because at the same time we have the Silverlight world that says, hey, you get to speak sharp, C sharp everywhere. One language, all of these different platforms, and it has its own strengths. Hmm. Indeed, indeed, it does. There's there's strengths and weaknesses on both sides, and we've we are on the side of stripping down to um, to the to the bare minimums of what we need in order to to gain maintainability and other things that we that we see. And that you know that sort of argues to the favor of uh, the Ruby community will be the ones that care about HTML5 the most because mm. they don't tend to go to these other platform tools to solve video problems. And, and you're not going Flash or Silverlight on that. You want the video tag from HTML5. Right. Indeed. And we're having a lot of those discussions inside. Um, when jQuery first arrived on the scene, you know, a couple of years ago, we were having a lot of discussions on JavaScript raw versus prototype versus jQuery. Um, and, you know, been using jQuery happily for a long time now. And so um, you do see us taking advantage of a lot of those things. Absolutely. No, I, it's exci- and it's an exciting area to work. I, I'm, do you see Ruby sites built that use a little Flash as well to pick up those things? Oh, indeed. There's, um, there's a, a, a quite a bit of, um, there's, there's quite a community there. I remember speaking with a guy, and I wish I could remember his name, who wrote a book for Manning on, um, on Flash and uh, Rails together. Um, and I know quite a few people that are doing it. Um, there's, you know, there's definitely debates to have on the whole RIA versus, uh, versus web standards and different things like that. But we, uh, there is a community, strong community of that. Yeah. And I think that's very compelling. Like it's a good combination. And I just looking around at some articles here on flash against the rails action controllers. Like, yeah, there's obviously a connection to make those two work together. I don't know that anyone's done Silverlight with Ruby, but it doesn't seem like there'd be any reason you couldn't. No, it sounds like it doesn't seem like well, we were, Yeah, we were working with something. Um, uh, um, our company, Edgecase, actually worked with the guys on the was it Gestalt project, I believe, um, that did a bunch of uh, Silverlight in the browser um, things, trying to let Ruby and IronRuby work together. I'm, I'm not sure where the state of that sits anymore, but we um, uh, had teamed up with them to work on some example um, example code and whatnot to help show that viability. So I know it's out there. Yeah, no, it's it compelling. And it's an interesting bridge, right, between all of these different worlds and how you might mm-hmm. make them play together. Yeah, indeed. You know, you said something uh, in this conversation that reminded me, you know, we just take Rails for granted. Or, you know, that it, you always use Rails with Ruby. but it, And in the end, Rails is really an ORM. ORM is part of Rails, yes. Right. Rails is a web framework, exactly. Okay, and 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 or it's I think it's good not to usually associate it with ORM because there's been a lot of conflict around ORMs. Yes, and, well, and, and just the uh, sheer volume of them that are available too. The the those conflicts are not uh, we're not shielded against those by any means. Really? Um, so Rails is a um, is a web application framework that comes with multiple pieces. One of those pieces is Active Record, that is um, the active uh, implementation of the Active Record pattern that Martin Fowler put in his architecture um, enterprise architecture um, book, and um, and it is kind of the default. It well, it is the default um, called ORM for Rails. Mm-hmm. Now, recently there was a rewrite of Rails from the ground up. Um, um, well, I don't know if it's technically from the ground up, but it was a massive refactoring that helped take away the coupling points these. And so now we sit here with what's called Rails 3. Um, Rails 3 now allows us to switch out the ORM. So you can now swap it out for other ORMs, or what if you're going against the Mongo um, instance? Or what if right, you're going you want to get against, away from SQL entirely. Yeah, you can, go against, you can go against what's called Active Resource, which gives you the same, um, the same API inside that you're using with your controllers, but realistically what you're doing is you're calling services that are out there. You're calling RESTful services. Mm-hmm. We go again. We talk about web standards a lot. We go down to the bare minimums, and therefore we can take advantage of a lot of these things without the tools. And so you have what looks like an active record object call, but instead of going to a database, it's going to a server through a REST for call, authenticated, secured, bringing back data for you and presenting it again. 
And so we do have ORMs as part of it, but we actually have pluggable units that can go against just about anything. And and the reason I pressed against this, and I, I, there's two pieces that excite me here. The first yeah. is you're confronting the core issue of ORMs. I mean, so much of Ruby has been is a very bare metal approach. You write it yourself and so forth until the data communication piece comes in. And then I'm not writing the sequel most of the time. And as a sequel guy, I got to tell you, sometimes you spit out some nasty sequel and, <laughs> and it's fairly tough to fix, right? It's not easy for me to say, hey, I'll just rewrite that as a store procedure. It'll be optimized. Now you grab a hold of it. That The tool seems to struggle with that. Well, it does and it doesn't. So one of the interesting things is we have our share of nasty, gnarly sequel in this house here. Yeah. We've been doing applications for four and a half years in Rails, and we always do them the same way. We start at the ORM layer, and we use it. And then as mm -hmm. soon as we put it out and start profiling it, we find places where it doesn't hold up. We okay. swap it out when it needs to be. So um, you're willing to yank away from the pure ORM layer for performance when necessary? When necessary and measured. You know, right, and, and, whole, and the point of you got to fire first before you can aim. Until exactly. you've run it. Right. You yourself, Until you've actually you yourself, seen where the pain point is, you don't know what to optimize. Huh. Exactly. You give yourself a flexible tool and a flexible language, then you go first and building it for maintainability and then come back and say, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice it here. Or you really do measure and say, is it, is it honestly a fact that I need a SQL query or have I done something stupid? Am yeah. I subtracting two arrays with a million records each instead of letting the database lift that for me? Um, again, Rails 3 tackled this as well and found a lot of those pain points and helped abstract them into uh, another uh, another query language called Errol when you need to. So you actually have an intermediate layer between yourself and the database as a as another stopgap if you need it. And so, but you can always still go down to the database because nothing fixes problems uh, like yet another layer of abstraction. Right. I and I'm not trying to be negative here. In a lot of ways, I feel like the research I've done looking at the way the Rails folks are doing things is this is the most advanced thinking in ORMs anywhere i quite honestly I, i'd say in that and in um let's call it let's use the big enterprise word but enterprise architecture as well i've seen mere, more pure soa implementations in rails than i ever have seen in net or java um hmm. and i'm willing to stand behind that um we're talking pure back to http we're talking about making use of things as they you know as they were meant to be used instead of going out into tools and generators and whistles and the whole nine yards as we need them but, you know, we were generally educated when the SOA movement was coming that we needed these complex extractions over the communications part mm -hmm. of the SOA. And you guys don't do that. You're very bare metal on the communication side. We are. Um, it's, you know, you, um, SOA, you know, SOA is an architectural pattern. It wasn't right. a set of tools that was supposed to be prescribed. Right. Um, and so you're hitting on a hot button here, and I'm going to speak for myself, definitely not the community. But um, we, um, as a, you know, in the Rails world, there is a lot more looking at what can we make use of that is already provided for us. HTTP is there. RESTful, you know, the RESTful patterns are very easy to follow. And if you do, if you, you know, the convention over configuration part, mm -hmm. we don't have tools as a community that tell us when we do something wrong. You have a friend who sits and slaps you upside the head. Right. And so if you follow these conventions, you don't have to. But if you do, you can then start gluing other things in, and you can make assumptions based on those conventions. And then the way you keep those contracts is through testing. You have tests around things that prove what's going on and what's not. And that's how we communicate. Which is an interesting point about Ruby on Rails in general was really the proof that you can be quite loose in the language if you've got a good testing infrastructure. Right. One of my friends has a great quote about the fact that, you know, regulators on the cars don't keep you from driving stupid. They just prevent you, make you drive slower. <laughs> um, Neil Ford said that a while back. And it's, we, look at, we look at that that way. The tools around us, are they providing the value or not? And so we're not. And the way we keep ourselves regulated is community standards, is good coding practices. And I think by giving people permission to, to take risks, perceived risks on a language level, they are going to step up and do more good practices. I've been on a project where a lot of our tests failed because somebody had redefined the way regular expressions worked. Hmm. Seems pretty scary. But the fact that I found those on the test the first time I did a pull from the repository shows that it wasn't a big deal, you know? Yeah, but you, you, he did something very scary. He messed with how regular expressions work. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. And That's it's hairy. And, 
those those lines, you know, those lines can some people see them as lines. We see them as just you know guidelines, um, and you can cross back and forth. This is where a lot of the culture from Lisp comes from, and a lot of the ideas from that. As scary as everybody thinks of of Lisp, there are some great ideas in the fact that you spent just as much time tweaking your problem domain and your application code as you did tweaking the language to come down to that level. Paul Graham has some great essays about that. Um, and it's, um, that's exactly how we've started to work, in which there's times where you go to the language and say, I want something that looks better and works better for this, mm-hmm. all for the sake of maintainability. Well, Joe, um, we're just about out of time. Is there any last-minute things you want to, or calls to action that you want to share? I would definitely say find somebody in the community, Dr. Nick, myself. Um, this guy is Dr. Nick at EngineYard. The blog is on EngineYard.com. They're the ones that did the Rails installer. Myself, Wayne, Dr. Nick, um, anybody else in the community, if you're in the .NET community and can help us out, especially with Visual Studio integration, we'd love to hear from you. Great. Keep an eye out. We're going to be doing a Ruby on Windows conference to get people together um, to let them find a place that they can talk about Ruby and Rails and not be made fun of for not having a Mac. Um, and right. we're looking to expand. We we want everybody to have the same opportunities we've had and get them in. And so we, we genuinely look forward to these conversations. Awesome. Joe O'Brien, thanks for joining us for this hour. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you next time on Dr. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.